Success, we are on. Welcome to the From Mess to Success podcast, a podcast where we discover, explore and unpick people's From Mess to Success stories. I'm your host, Justin, founder of From Mess to Success Coaching, author of You're Fired, You're Hired, and I'm on a mission to share stories from people who have moved from their version of mess to their version of success, transforming their lives along the way. And today, we are joined by the brilliant and wonderful Jill Grams, aka the Happy Balance Coach. Now, Jill is a born and bred Scottish lass who, for the last 20 years, has been living in the French Alps surrounded by the mountains. Jealous, so am I. But Jill has a gripping from Mr. Success story that needs to be told. For most of her adult life, Jill suffered with low self-esteem and a gut-wrenching underlying belief that she wasn't good enough. This resulted in hiding behind food for many years with bulimia nearly destroying her life. Until she said no more, she called time in her own BS and spent years changing her relationship with food. Jill now spends her time helping others doing the same and has supported hundreds of people on their self-development journey. Jill, welcome to the show. How are you? I am good. I am good. It's great to be here. I am laughing, though, because right off I think, I'm not sure I qualify for this. I mean, mess to success. I think I'm messed to slightly less messy. <laughs> I think mess, that's where I have, right? Messed to slightly less messy. I like that. I'm messed to a halfway tidy <laughs> halfway tidy yeah and I think do you know what it's like we could go straight away defining and going deeper into what what does success actually mean what does it actually look like and what does that word mean to mean mean to everybody and I think obviously it, it means so many different things to so many different people so uh, so mess to a little less messy I'll take that but I'm sure um, I'm sure as we yeah I'm sure as we go along the way um you know maybe the listener will uh, will think differently when they hear your your story so um so yeah so um jill paint me the picture alps mountains log cabins long runs fire logs burning is this true <laughs> yeah, yes it is true actually um it's i am lucky um I live in the French Alps, yes, and I do do all of those things. It's not for everybody, though. Um, I guess I'm a, I am a bit of a loner. Um, friends have referred to me as one of those crazy cat ladies, but without the cats. And so life in the mountains, you know, just me, my little family, my dog suits me down to the ground and and yes i consider myself very lucky i spent a lot i spend a lot of time out running walking on the trails with nobody around me and i love every minute of it yes and yes we do have a we do have a fire a log fire you have a fire yeah it's what we need it yeah, I, I bet you do. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you've got, you know, when I've seen those Instagram posts and, and stuff, yeah, I've, I've obviously looked at that and thought, oh my God, you know, that just looks, that looks absolutely amazing. Especially, I think I've seen pictures when you, um, when you go for that long run and there's that long windy road ahead and there's that, you know, I'm, um, 
Although I'm not running at the moment, as a runner myself, I've, I was always into, and am always into that kind of, that lone wolf long road where you're just on that beaten path, you're on that beaten track with just you and your thoughts, you know, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, well, we've spoke, we, we, we're similar in that respect, aren't we? And I, I, yeah, now that's the side of it that I do love. And the summers, you know, when you can be out there for hours on end, it, amazing. We are, we're probably coming into the period now that I like the least. It's, it's, well, same in the UK, I guess. You're starting to get, the days are very short. It is blooming freezing. Yeah. Um, the ski resorts haven't opened yet, so we don't have the snow yet. So we're in that sort of transition period um, where it's it's dark, it's cold, um, and you don't you don't get as many of the benefits that you, as you do at other times of the year. But hey, we've all got you, you take the good with the bad, don't you? Yeah, and it's, as as sort of Brits, as a fellow Brits, I think we've always got. We've always got this bit of habit, haven't we, of uh, potential moaning about the weather or the seasons, even though we might, you know, move to these great places abroad and be blessed with all these, um, you know, all these kind of things that we've surrounded ourselves with, whether it's heat, whether it's mountains, whether it's views, we always then kind of revert back to, yeah, but, you know, but... Yeah. So funny you say that. I was on a, I was doing a, I think it was, I must have been a live on Facebook and one of the groups I was in. And I made a comment along the lines of, oh, I'm in a funny mood today. It must be the weather. And someone commented saying, saying exactly that. How British, only the Brits would yeah. put their mood down to the weather. And I, yeah. I hadn't even yeah. thought about it. But yes, I do that all the time. <laughs> Good, good stuff. Okay, so AKA the Happy Balance Coach, um, which is 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 about changing people's relationship with food, right? So, I think what's a really good starting point is, you know, how is that? How do you explain that in simple terms? And I always like to sort of look at what someone's doing, but then try and break it down to, you know, the most simple simplistic form. What is changing people's relationship with food? Ooh, um, I guess the my answer, the answer that comes to mind immediately is, well, it, it change in the relationship, someone's relationship with food depends entirely on on what specific their specifically their relationship looks like. Um, so there's no um, one size fits all. But I guess in a nutshell, if I have to sort of summarize it, it would be, so most of the people, we're working on the premise that most of the people I work with are unhappy with the relationship with food. Yeah. So changing the relationship with food, more often than not, we approach that by trying to change the relationship with their selves. Right. Okay. So a lot of what we do, we don't look at food at all. Um, you know, they're unhappy. Ultimately, this is huge generalizations here, but they're unhappy generally um, with the relationship with food because they're unhappy in themselves. They're unhappy in their own skin. So we, we try and turn that around and say, right, okay, let's look at getting you happy. Let's, let's look at what makes you happy. Let's 
Look at what brings you joy. Let's get more of that stuff into your life. Let's take the focus away from food for now and just get you feeling good. Um, Let's look at what you're good at. Let's look at what you do well. Um, Let's get more of that into your life. Boost the mood. And then subsequently, usually, hand in hand with that, when you start to feel good about yourself, you know, it it, it sounds cheesy, but it comes from within, doesn't it? Once you start feeling good on the inside, you're less likely to make those poor food choices. You're more likely going to want it. It's going to become, it becomes more intrinsic, doesn't it? The, 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 the choice to make health, to eat healthy food, to nourish your body, that becomes something that you want to do because you want to keep this momentum of feeling great. Yeah, I think there's real power in that. And I, I, the point I um, find really interesting is this looking at what you're, what you're good at and also how do you find joy? Because I think with joy is comes fulfillment, right? I think, you know, when you, I think when we use, from what I can see in, in some of this spaces, sometimes the word happy can be sort of misinterpreted as all happy clappy, right? But joy, I think what brings you joy is, is those things that also bring you fulfillment, which is, you know, so, um, which I think is powerful, but also, yeah, I think looking at these strengths and what a person's good at, I think there's real there, there, there's real power in that. And I think um, how I can relate that to my own world, and especially over is is you know not is it's not you look at someone's what they're not good at, and it's like mm, yeah, really okay. Well, I kind of know that I've been told that all my life. You know, I've been critiqued on that, but if to focus on what you're good at, I think can really build self-esteem right it can really lift a person up totally totally Mm. and what good does it really do to spend heaps of time looking at what you're not good at (laughs) yeah you know it it, it serves nothing really um let's look at what you're good at and if you want to improve upon the things that you're not so good at well by all means but the way to do that is is to use your strengths you know Mm. use your strengths to grow and yeah, you you mentioned you mentioned the word happy sounding a little bit fluffy, and that made me think of the name of my business, the the Happy Balance Coach. But it, it's exactly it, it's what you said there. It's the happy is not necessarily about the sort of fluffy um, approach to happiness. It's more about. Um, about the balance is it's about finding the right you know it's i take a holistic approach to the whole thing so i guess what i'm trying to say with with the happiness is is it's about more than just the food it's about finding joy as you said finding finding your specific joy whatever that looks like to you and and getting yourself feeling good yeah yeah and that's I think that's that's that that's the point there. It's it's yeah. It's getting yourself feeling good and and looking at it's looking at wise as well, right? It's looking at 
you know, I, I had a perception that if I'm coming to Jill, you know, and I'm Jill, I'm running to the cupboards every Saturday night, I'm eating all this, you know, rubbish and junk, then you're going to just tell me to stop. But it's, it's, it's more than that, right? It's unpeeling the, well, what, you know, why are you doing this? What's the, what's the, you know, what, why is this happening? Is, is that right? Completely, completely. Yeah. We're so, we're all so quick. Like, you know, you need to stop. But, but there's a reason you haven't stopped. And, and it's because you're getting something. We, we get something out of these, these negative habits. They serve a purpose. We maybe aren't fully aware of what it is and there lies the frustration, but there will be something. You'll be getting something. You know, it will be it'll be satisfying some emotion or some habit. There will be something there. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Um, a big part of what I do is is getting people to understand exactly exactly that, why they're making the choices that they're making. What are the forces that are driving these choices? Um, that kind of thing. So it's not so much like a, an addiction to food. It's more like a negative habit around food, right? I think there's a difference, isn't there? That So you don't come, people come into you going, Jill, I'm, I'm addicted to eating sweets. It's more about I've got, you know, I've got this, relationship or this 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 bad habit of eating sweets and you know and, and let's look at the reasons around that yeah i'm not you know with food or with alcohol i am not qualified i'm not an addiction yeah. Yeah. counselor you know i i'm not qualified in that my own experience which i think we'll get to later i i, I was myself addicted to food but that's yeah. not where i'm qualified mine is more the, the people i tend to work with um, emotionally eat. They may not really call it that when they first come to me. You know, the type of person that's generally drawn to me is someone that's just unhappy, unhappy with they're eating more than they would like. They they probably potentially weigh more than they like as a result. They're not happy when they look in the mirror. They're just stuck in a rut and, and, and not feeling great about themselves and want to change, but don't really know where to start because they're not really aware of why they're why they're acting that way in the first place yeah, yeah and this is what i really love about it and you know one of them the, the, you know that was so intrigued to have you on the show was because you know when you when you look at the sort of standing on the scales thing and and that you mentioned you, you know the world society society dictates that you've just you've just got to go to the gym and that's you know it's all around it's all around physical fitness and that's the that's the first thing you have to do you're you know you're you're overweight or you're even if you're not overweight but you're conscious about how you look or you're and the first thing that society says is right off you go to the gym but it's is it more it's more than that right is it more than that it's like you know it, it is the food choices and where to start and and you know is that just just as important as the physical aspects of you know going to the gym and burning calories and trying to lose weight you know i i, I just don't think it's it's held in the same regard as you know this changing relationship with food supports you know your overall well-being or changing how you look or changing how you uh, how you feel about yourself i think we all just are told to trot off to the gym 
Yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong, I am a big fan, not necessarily of the gym, but I'm a huge fan of of getting everybody moving because Mm. back to what I said about the holistic approach, well, and research, science supports it. When you move, when you get all those wonderful brain chemicals going, it lifts your mood. So so back to getting people feeling better about themselves, exercise is is an easy way to do that. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of getting people moving, but not more with a view to, well, it's good for you. It's, it, it's good for your heart. It's good for your body. But more importantly, it's good for your mind. So I am a big fan of that, but I'm also like my own story is such that if I look at the period of my life when I struggled the most with food and my own relationship with food was at its worst, well, you couldn't have told that from the outside. You know, I was I was fitter than I've ever been in my life. Mm. I had what I, I look at now, I would describe as the perfect body. But that wasn't what was going on. You know, there were emotions underneath that just were not being met. Um, I, there, there was so much missing in my life. And that's why I turned to food. Right. Um, so it was, it was, it was it, for me way more than just look good, feel good they didn't add up for me I looked great I felt miserable yeah yeah yes it's a self-esteem thing that we then turn we then turn to something to compensate it and you know for in your it seems it sounds like in your situation it's food which has then gone and led you on to have a sort of a you know we're going to unpick in a moment to have a a lifelong interest in 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 this area and then helping others and obviously for others it's drugs it's lifestyle it's it's uh it's alcohol um and for some it's even is it even things like you know it, it's actually it could be things like fitness right it could be they you know you you're you're dealing with you people can be addicted to gym okay maybe not addicted to the wrong word but they throw that self-esteem thing into going to the gym and over overcompensating and their relationship with fitness becomes could become problematic in the same way as it is for if they turn to food and they turn to you know drugs and other vo- and alcohol and other vices, right? Absolutely, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Mm. I've okay. been there a little bit too. Yeah, and I think they all link back to the same thing, sort of, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I think I have as well. Yeah, all those paths lead back to that over sort of. Okay, something's missing. So, how do I feel good about myself? So I'll overcompensate here, and that's that. You know, that whole I think um, spinning the plates and and and, and juggling of life. So, mm. yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the start of your of your journey, Jill. So obviously. You know, I talked about in the intro about this self-esteem feeling and this sort of low self-esteem throughout your life. What, how did that come into play? What sort of age were you? And, and do you remember a time when, when it started to sort of, you know, you started to feel this way? Yeah, um, I can tell, I could tell, now I could tell you because I've, I've subsequently done a lot of 
reflecting on, mm. on all of this. The time I wasn't aware of it. it. It wasn't when I was young. When I was a young child, you know, primary school age, I was confident. Everything looked great. It would have been in the teenage years that things started to go a little bit wrong. It was when I... Um, so I guess insecurity and low self-esteem started to rear its head when I really became aware of our, I use the word our, but everyone's differences and what that meant to me. So I guess, I guess we all want to fit in, don't we? You know, especially when you're a teenager, I look back, I wanted desperately, like most people do, to be popular, to be one of the cool kids. And I still wasn't. <laughs> and um, I was at primary school. Um, at primary school, like, so to give you a bit of my backstory, I um, I was brought up in Aberdeen, Scotland, in a council area. Yeah. And I went to my little primary school, was just, you know, down the street from my house. And... I was safe there. I was I was one of the popular kids there. I, I very much fit it. I fit in. Yeah. Um, when I went to secondary school, things changed a little bit. So my my parents didn't put me to what would have been my the, the secondary school in my catchment area. They sent me off to what they considered a better school. They they were doing a good thing. Um, but it was in what I would describe. I laugh now because it's just comical when you look back. But at the time, it was in a posh part of town, you know, very different to the area of town that I'd grown up in. And I suddenly found myself in this school. I was there, were, you know, me and one other girl that went from my school. I felt like I was in a world where I didn't really belong. Hmm. I wasn't one of the popular kids, you know, the popular kids in my, in my mind, well, in my memory, they were all the wealthier children, you know, who from that area, um, who had backgrounds different to mine. And that it was, it was at that point, I guess, that I started to feel different Hmm. I wanted to feel the same, but inside I felt different. And it was it was those feelings of feeling different that I think that's when the insecurities hmm. started to rear their head. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's that's fascinating um, and not too dissimilar to um, to something I went through in school actually was getting moved schools and um, went from a mixed school to a um, to a, to an all boys school um, and it was a private school so I went from public to private and then had all this kind of yeah these feelings of um, in back then I just remember feelings of being super competitive having to be really really competitive not actual feelings of um you know oh my god i you know i've got like like low self-esteem or whatever but there there was this like feeling that i had to really really compete and feel and also feeling something you measure mentioned feeling different mm. yeah. yeah totally yeah it completely as you say i mean i wasn't if you if you had spoken to me when i was 14 15 there's no way I would have been coming out with the insecure sob story. Yeah. I, I was none the wiser. But I remember I remember I would 
I would lie about where I lived, you know, in conversation. I wouldn't say, mm. you know, I wouldn't say, tell people my address and things like that. And I remember feeling very ashamed about that because, you know, I, I love my family. I'm proud of my upbringing, you know, but at that age, it was just like, oh, yeah. I just didn't want to be different. I didn't want to be the kid that came from the council estate. I wanted to be one of the cool posh kids. And I remember, um, I remember lying and about things like that, but feeling very shameful. And I guess my way of sort of overcoming the insecurity was to, um, was to, as you say, be competitive, try and be the best that I could be. So, you know, from the outside looking in, you would, you would never have known that I suffered from insecurity. I came across as a very confident young girl, um, a very competitive, confident young girl. You wouldn't have, have known that I was feeling that way on the inside, but they were just ways of trying to sort of hide, I guess, what was really going on inside. Yeah, yeah. And then that, you know, what sometimes what I see and what that can then lead into this sort of feelings of feeling indifferent can then manifest and lead into feelings of I'm not good enough, right? And question question and everything. So where where does this sort of journey lead to? It sort of leads into what in um, college or I think you mentioned you um, when we spoke before that you didn't go to uni or there was something around that time and there was an America thing going on where you could have gone to America? So I did go to America. You did. So you did. at secondary school, back to the whole competitive thing. So I got into running. I um, I was really close with my dad. Um, he was a runner. I started going to the local running club too. I got into, into competitive running and I got a scholarship to go to an American university. I got a, a cross-country mm-hmm. scholarship. So so off I went. So I did go to America. Um, and I guess that's, that's what I mean about um, the, the competitive side of things. I am... Um, I was quite, looking back, I, I, I was no Paula Radcliffe, but I was, was half decent. You know, I was good enough to get a sports scholarship. But somewhere deep inside, I didn't believe I was. I, I still felt like this imposter from the council estate in Aberdeen that just shouldn't have been at this American university on a sports scholarship. I felt, and again, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I felt like I shouldn't be there, that I was going to get found out. And then I put this enormous pressure on myself. You know, it was like, I guess deep down because I didn't really believe I was good enough. I felt this pressure to constantly prove that I was. So I always had to be, you know, the best. Um, I, I measured my, how can I, I guess my self-worth. Yeah. I measured it. It was very much linked to my performance, to results. Yeah. Um, I had a very fixed mindset, you know, um, and that proved to be incredibly damaging. So I, I went to America already with 
an eating disorder. Mm. And when I found myself over in a foreign country, far away from home, you know, miles away from my support network, those were the days we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have, you know, WhatsApp and everything like that. And those were the days where you had to take a phone card and go to a phone booth to call your family that were on a completely different time zone. Um, That's when things started to get really bad. This pressure that I put on myself to, um, to, to perform, um, it's, everything came crumbling down. Right. Right. Okay. It's exhausting, isn't it? It's really exhausting. This, what I find is this, this imposter syndrome and this constant pressure to fit in, to be something, you know, to not be in your comfortable space. It's, it's exhausting. And then what happens is in, in your case, it leads towards, you know, it leads into um, a bigger problem, which is, which is this, you know, the eating disorder coming out. Um, you know, so what did that what did that look like then? Because I don't know, it's not something um, I've experienced. So you know, what does that what does that feel like? An eating disorder? What does it? How do you frame it? Um. Well, I I, I suffered from bulimia. Mm-hmm. I I don't want to go. The, the last thing. What I'm always scared about when I talk too openly about this stuff is because from my own experience subject to where you are you know when you're back to what we were saying saying earlier i think about uh, about about alcohol and about about food when you're in the throes of an eating disorder you believe you don't necessarily want to change you believe you're get getting something from Mm. those behaviors and so I have a fear of being too vocal about this stuff because subject to where people are when they're listening, it mm. might give the wrong message. Right. Um, it might almost come across as desirable when in actual fact, this period that I'm speaking about now was without a doubt the worst period of my life. It wasn't good. It may have looked good from the outside, but I was I was very sad. I was very lonely. I was suicidal at times. You know, I can't stress enough that this was not. Um, it wasn't a good, bulimia. Was not a good solution. It was something I turned to food at the time because it it gave me comfort. It gave me comfort at a time when, as I've just described, I was putting a horrendous amount of pressure on myself to prove to the world that I was good enough mm. because inside I didn't believe I was. And that, as you say, was exhausting. I went to the shop I went I would buy food and I would take it home and I would literally hide away in my apartment all day every day and I would gorge myself over and over and over again Mm. and I would you know it fluctuated but 
ultimately what ended up happening was I, I stopped going to my lectures because it was preferable to sit in my apartment and eat food. Um, I became addicted to food. I became addicted to those good feelings that the binging gave me. Um, and it became incredibly destructive because I withdrew. You know, there was so much shame around it, um, around my behaviors that I just, I, I withdrew. Again, you couldn't, I'm not going to say you couldn't tell because I think anybody that cared about me knew exactly what was going on. But at the time, I didn't want help. I was in complete denial. I just wanted to hide away and eat. And that's what I did. That's what I did. So I I didn't submit you know most of my my final coursework. I didn't graduate from university. I I literally went up onto the stage with the mortar board and the gown and got handed a bit of paper that said, please report to the admissions office on Monday. You know, I didn't get my diploma. Mm. Everybody sat there thought I did, but I didn't because I'd, I'd, I'd withdrawn for the last year, mm. but more than that, really, of my university career. Wow. Well, and I'm... You know, am I assuming correctly here? This is this is when you know there's there's a lot of feelings of guilt and shame that get oh. wrapped around that that moment in your life. This this you know this worst period for you, and that's that's almost like a pinnacle point, isn't it? Where it comes to a it comes to a tipping point of you know you effectively not not getting you know not not getting your qualification right. Yeah, everything, you know, for me, I was I was that girl from the council estate that yeah. got granted a scholarship to an American university. And now I see how amazing was that, you know? Um, at the time, I felt shame about being that girl. And now I think what an amazing achievement. And for my for my family. And especially for my, well, I say especially for my dad, I'm sure for both my mum and my dad, but my dad being a runner, you know, he wanted nothing more than for his girl to go off on this. You know, he wanted me to be the next woman, Paula Radcliffe. (laughs) And instead, you know, look what happened. So, but now knowing what I know my mum and dad didn't care about all they cared about was their daughter and 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 me and had they known what was going on all they would have wanted was for me to be healthy and happy but again yeah the shame i felt at the mm. time that you know i hid the fact that i didn't graduate i it didn't just stop there i i it was after america i i i I hung out there for another few years and then I then I ended up coming to France. Yeah. And I basically ran from that story for a long time. I um I just shut it out. I pretended I didn't care. I pretended it didn't happen. And I just carried on with my life and then I came to France. And that's, you know, it's a real tourist party place that we live in, you know, ski resorts. I was a seasonaire in a French ski resort, oh. having a wonderful time, mm-hmm. drinking loads, pretending that that period in my life 
didn't matter and, and pretending that it hadn't happened. I didn't actually process any of that until a lot later, mm. but I carried shame and guilt for not, I guess, not making a success of that opportunity for mm. for years and years and years. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, and that's, you know, it. It's when you're in this kind of period, it's you've got no idea what is going on, what is happening to you. Right. And it's not until you go through this sort of journey of life, the rise before the fall, the fall before the rise, the, you know, the hero's journey that we talk a lot about is that you, you know, is, is that you look, you look back and these it, it, it's quite it's quite common in in everyone's story is different, but the actual premises of that rise of four four to rise, you know, hero's journey coming coming back in full full circle, Mister Success, is is actually really you know quite common to. I think a, a life well lived, so to speak, or a, an interesting life, um, you know. And what I find really fascinating if that's the right word or were powerful is y you don't talk about the pressures of running throughout that whole story you talk about this feeling of not feeling good enough which led to the, the, the eating disorder and I, you know i thought it was always linked to you know pressures around personal best timings or you know stuff like that and it seems like it wasn't it wasn't about that it was about these 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 yeah these these feelings of, of of just not being good enough this constant pressure um this potentially being in a place where you didn't feel you fitted in you know and that's um that's 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 super powerful yeah don't get me wrong part of the pressure were the times but that was just part of a much bigger problem the time again was it was this because underneath, I guess, I didn't feel like I belonged and I didn't feel good enough. Yeah. I had to constantly prove that I was. So I did go out there and constantly have to better my time. You know, I, I was, I would go out and I'd be running in a, I was always running like to the max. And if I felt like on the day I was going to have a bad day, I would literally stop and walk rather than complete the race and have what I consider to be a poor time because it was, it was, again, it was like, to me, I had to prove all the time that I could do these amazing things that I was, I was amazing because inside I felt everything but amazing. Um, so times did play a part. I didn't, I didn't enjoy my running at the time. I look back now and think you silly fool, like what I wouldn't give to be able to run like that now and just enjoy it. But I didn't at the time because it was just pressure, 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 because it was all just about performance. It always had to be everything I did. I had to do really well. Mm. And ironically, that made me do everything really bad. It, it, it made me it caused overwhelm and ultimately made me, as I say there, stop running. Mm. And the same at university, it was things like I didn't submit my my final assignments because they had to obviously be perfect yeah. or else, yeah. you know, so I just didn't submit them. Yeah, and that could lead us down another road of talking about this 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 perfectionism. Um, yeah. So it's all linked, it, you know, it, very it, much linked it, to self-worth. 
Yeah, this kind of um, and yeah, this this need to be perfect and um, yeah, it's not until I can relate to that because obviously over the last um, as I've gone on my own sort of new journey, it's this this is relinquishing that you know that that perfectionism and just understanding that it's 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 just okay, you know, and you're just you're just you're just you're just doing your best, you know. So yeah, okay, so you you. You go to France, um, there's a bit of a partying lifestyle going on, there's kind of, you know, shame and guilt sort of being wrapped into the, the story, um, this kind of burying this American experience. And and then what, what sort of, um, you know, what, what sort of, how, when do things start to, to, to turn for you or when, when do things start to change? So things started to change in France. In, in France, my relationship with food start changed essentially um it took it it took it didn't happen overnight but i over you know over the course of many years i changed my relationship with food i i no longer went to food for um or comfort. I was no longer lonely. Was it was a was a, a huge thing. I think I think part of it was I met my who is now my you know my long term partner Paul. Yeah. We we met and a loving relationship um, played a big part. You know that's that's an important one for me. Mm. I need to feel loved. Yeah. Um, and so. A relationship, being in a relationship, being in a secure relationship, played a huge part. I, I had less of a need to 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 turn to food for comfort and love. Um, I also there were there were lots of other things that happened. I guess over the course of the years that I've lived here, I've lived here for what twenty something years mm, now. It's a long time. Um, so I I changed my relationship with food. But a lot of it is through changing my relationship with myself. You know, I found myself in a part of the world that, well, that, that has become my forever home. I love it here. I love the outdoors. That connection with nature plays a huge part in my mental health. Um, so I started when, you know, again, the name of my business, The Happy Balance, the balance part comes from balancing several key elements that I believe are important for my overall health and well-being. And that balance started to come into play in my life in France. Yeah. So there was much more of, you know, there was much more focus on doing the things that I need to do to make myself happy. So all that started in France, which was great. What wasn't so good was, and it's no different from, from most people, I guess, but the drinking, you know, mm. it's, it's a holiday environment that we live. So people come up on holiday, you come on a ski holiday, you ski all day, and then you go to the pub at night. Yeah. And that was, that's our, was our life, you know? So we were immersed in this drinking culture. And unfortunately for somebody who, who suffers with low self-esteem, in, in some ways, I think I replaced the food, some of it, some, with the alcohol. Yeah. Um, but, but 
again, for many, many years, I don't, I, I didn't see any of that as negative. I had a great time. I was young, you know, I've got wonderful, fun memories of, you know, the first 10, 15 years that I was out here that I wouldn't change for anything. Um, I drank like a fish, but I'm yeah. not. I'm not ashamed of that at all. We had a, we had an awful lot of fun. At least you can remember it. <laughs> I can remember some of it. <laughs> not all. Not all. <laughs> there are people that listen to this that know me, so they'll say, "Don't lie, Jill. I don't yeah. remember all of it, but I remember yeah. a lot." <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, and then obviously there's there's. Again, you know, you replace you're replacing food um, with alcohol or potentially so you're substituting and then, you know, and again, that seems seems quite common, doesn't it? And in, in, especially from from the people I talk to and on, on people's journeys. Um, and then, you know, you start to obviously, you know, love. We could talk about that a whole other podcast. And love, yeah, love conquers all and finding love, I think obviously that that completely yeah it does change everything i think you know parenting as well changes changes the dynamic but i think you know also what um what i can relate to is this kind of connection with nature and this health and sort of feeling more healthy and i, I think I, I generally find that you know if you've people who have been through trauma or or they're on some form of transform life transformation that they they generally you know they relate more to these things they relate more to that you know connection with with nature the, the you know and this wellness part and i think you know and this is why in the world we live in today with you know, and it's not something I talk about a lot because I'm not, it's not the world I'm in, but with mental health, it's, you know, there is this, this huge sort of, I think, you know, feeling and leaning towards doing all more of this stuff and more getting out in the woods and more getting out in nature and more walking and more connecting with the things that kind of we, we just neglect when we're going through, when, when we're going through, you know, um, different periods of our life. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I can only speak for myself and mm. they are the things that mean something to me. And I, I think when you were speaking there, it made me think that I think nature, um, connection, I think these things always have been important to me. I think they are essentially what I tapped into was they're they're what I value. They're they're part of who I am, and they always have been. You know, as you said at the beginning, I'm I'm a Scottish girl, born and bred. I was brought up. I, I love nothing more than as a young girl going off and with my dad and running in the woods. That's what that's me. That's what I loved to do. And then I left my little world and I went off to the states. And it was completely foreign. It was great, you know, parts of it were mm. great, but it, was, it, it wasn't me, it wasn't my yeah. environment. And when I came to France, I reconnected with things that are important to me. Okay, the mountains are much bigger here than what we have in Scotland, but it's, it's the mountains, it's the outdoors, it's that raw, wild nature that connects with me almost at, I, I'm going to go off on a tangent and sound a bit woo-woo, but it yeah. almost speaks to my soul. You know, it's part of who I am. And I think that's what happened in the next period of my life 
was I started to really discover who understand more maybe not even not not even being aware of it at the time I started to connect with things that are important to me and that I value and and connection and love is that too you know that's what I had growing up and then I went off to America and I was on my own I didn't have any of that I speak about coming to France I meet my partner so that piece of the puzzle slots in I get what I need there I get the connection with nature that I need and that I didn't have so all these things that are important to me started to come back into my life again yeah and my how I how how I relate to that is this removing the mask of authenticity and sorry removing the mask of like of sometimes ego or a previous self or the way it should be and then you remove the mask to become your more authentic self and I think what I see and what I feel is that it's not just about stripping that mask off all in one go you actually remove layers at a time and at various points in your in your your journey to, to of transformation and effectively your journey to to less mess um, <laughs> is uh, is you you strip away different different layers at a time until you know you get to a point and I don't even know if you ever know if you know that you're at that point of real authenticity I I, I don't know you know obviously I'm not um, I haven't spent 10 years in a in a in an ashram and you know in 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 Sri Lanka and so you know um, I haven't done that so I don't know what that feels like and but I, I, I certainly feel that you start to peel away those layers and that kind of what you're saying is that connection to mountains you related to some of it is to home you you know you start to peel that mask off to what you said is it connects with your soul and I think once you become that more authentic I think that's you move to that path of purpose I think you then start to what I found is you you start to feel more creative within yourself you start to you know produce you start to think more how can I give back how can I you know how can I you know you I think I think you find power in talking about it or expressing it whether it's through writing whether it's through you know whether it's through having a chat with someone in, in in sort of different shapes and forms right absolutely absolutely and i'm laughing because probably in 10 years time i'll look back at this conversation now and and see that i'd, I'd only peeled a couple of the layers there's way more to go yeah. so absolutely absolutely but that's you know i'm, I'm speaking about this period of my life, you know, in this chat, but this has happened over the course of what, 20, 30 years, you know, yeah. it's, it, there's been a lot of peeling, unpeeling yeah, going on. It's, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. But um, I think a biggie for me was a few years ago when I did decide to just have a break, have a break from the alcohol. Yeah. That was huge. That helped me see more clearly. It, when we talk about some of this unpeeling, that was big for me because what that did was enable me to see what was really going on. I, I saw that I used wine to to kind of blot things out a little bit. I'm a really, really sensitive. You mentioned they're creative. I'm a really creative, sensitive person. Um, but I used wine, I guess, to not feel quite as much, 
to just, you know, to fill the void in some ways. Mm. And when I, when I took a break, I started to feel an awful lot of emotion. And as hard as it was, that's probably been the last piece of the, the, the latest, I will say, the latest piece of the puzzle for me, because it's enabled me to explore, well, what is it you're feeling and why? And it's there, it's actually there quite latterly that I've realized a lot of the shame and the guilt and stuff that I was carrying around with me for 20, 30 years as a result of what happened in America and stuff like that. Stuff that happened way back that was having a knock-on negative, negative effect of my life today. So, um, so yeah, it was, it, it was, it was that quite recently that probably has given me a greater awareness of my story yeah yeah it gives you that clarity doesn't it and that's yeah. i think what i'm hearing is is, is really common it's it's you know is is you remove it, it does come it seems to come later removing alcohol for most for most people because of society and because of what it's the thing we've all sort of you know signed up for in terms of when we were young and it's just a part of our day-to-day lives is 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 classed as normal isn't it having a glass of wine but when you when you you do get to a point where you're removing it there's a general consensus that you know it gives you that clarity and it isn't it's another layer peeled off it makes you see things clearer it makes you feel differently and it makes you it's another step towards that you know a better you a more authentic you and um and that's you know that that seems to be what the power is within that and also reducing potentially reducing these feelings of, of shame and guilt wrapped around you know wrap, wrapped around alcohol and the wild nights you know yeah, yeah. The shame, the guilt, the low self-esteem. I think removing the alcohol let me enabled me to see clearer the good and the bad, but to accept. Well, I'm not even going to say bad. The not so good, <laughs> the messy bits, as you would. Yeah. To accept those, and to 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 celebrate and 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 be proud of all the good stuff. Whereas before I used to just, I just used to see a lot more of the failure, um, the mess. Now I see a lot more of the success. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Brilliant. Okay. So at this point, um, you're at what, or at what point do you start to feel this kind of tug, this pull to potentially helping others to, you know, to sort of telling your story, to giving back to, to others. Um, at what point does that come into play? Um, it was all rather, rather random. I was on a self-development course yeah. um, run by the wonderful Andy Ramage, yeah. who I now work for. Um, it was his self-development course. And, and during that course, he asked the question, um, how would I feel about coaching? And my my own experience of coaching was athletics coach. You know, I didn't know anything, any other type of coaching other than a sports coach. So I didn't really know what he meant at the time. So this whole coaching world is very new to me. Well, you know, in this form. Yeah. But when he asked that question, I guess it 
planted a seed. Um, and there was, there was curiosity there, you know, I, at that point, I, I still, you know, I, it wasn't being, being a coach was not really something I'd ever considered, but that planted a seed. Um, I was obviously, I was on this self-development course and then I started working for Andy on his courses, um, helping out in his courses. And I loved, I absolutely love the work I do there. I love the people contact. I get something so, I get so much from basically watching others and helping others do what I've done. And I think what I've done is just owned my story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find helping others accept who they are and own their story so incredibly rewarding that little by little, I thought, well, how can I do that? And where would I be best placed yeah. to do that well? And then that's when over time it came to me that actually I can use my story <laughs> to help others. So so I'd be best placed to go into an area that I actually know something about. And that is the painful story that I've just shared with you around having an eating disorder and having, you know, uh, an emotional relationship with food. And so little by little, um, the picture became clear that, that it almost felt like it was my calling. It was like what I was meant to do was to use my my strengths, my skills, which a few years ago, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what they were. But through the work I'd done on myself, through these self-development groups and the unpeeling that we've spoken about, I could see my strengths for what they were. And that combined with my own story, of the emotional eating, I thought, what better thing to do than to help others with their own struggles with emotional eating? And so that's it, it's sort of this whole thing has happened over the last few years. Um, it's felt like a bit of a dream, but it mm-hmm. just feels so right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. And I think when you find your calling and it feels so right, I think that's that's where the magic happens. That, you know, that, that is where the magic happens is when you feel that all the dots are, are, are connecting and that there's them power in your in your story, which, you know, I've heard your story. It's super, super powerful. And when you're then in a, and it's a similar to the position I'm in at the moment, when you're in a position where you can tell your own story to help others, I think that's, that's, that, that's magical. That's magical. And, you know, I think that's where, that's just where, where beautiful things can happen. But, but also when I've listened to, you know, you, you talk previously, Jill, and talk about your story, I've, I, I hear you talking about vulnerability a lot as well. And I find, I found that really, really powerful and something I can relate to that, you know, as a coach and telling your story and telling your backstory and trying to help others, 
it's you haven't got it all figured out and there's still vulnerability in 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 you know in, in, in what you do and I, I i love that because it's it's not about saying you know i've been through this i've got it all figured out i know what to do listen to me you know there's still there's still vulnerability there and i, I love it when you talk about that because it's something i can go do you know what yeah i feel the same i i you know i i, I totally feel the same i haven't got it all figured out but i know that what the path i'm on feels right oh totally i mean i guess that is my story my as i as i said a little bit earlier i've struggled with perfectionism you know i for years i thought my story had to be perfect and then it's been the realization that my story is far from perfect. It's blooming messy. Um, and it probably always will be, but that's my story. That's who I am. And I'm proud of it. And I'm willing to share that. And it's that, that has been, I guess, the willingness to just embrace it all the messy bits too. And to not be ashamed, um, to not hide, to not have to lie, to not have to pretend I'm somebody I'm not, to just be brave enough to be me and to share my story has been the most freeing, empowering, liberating thing I've Mm -hmm. ever done. And my story ain't any fancy story. It's just my life. It's just my life. And it's the mistakes I've made. And it's just owning them. Yeah. And and realizing that everybody has a story. And everybody has huge chunks of their story that are far from perfect. We're all just messy humans. Um, and so absolutely, I'm, I'm not going to... I would hate to to give any impression of trying to be perfect and trying to be something I'm not because that's that's what I was doing for so many years and that's why it was all going horribly wrong. So vulnerability, authenticity, owning the story, the messy bits too is my story. That's the essence of what I'm I'm all about. So you'll never see me, or if you do, have a word with me. <laughs> yes. If you see me out there spouting off about anything other than something that's authentic and true, just yeah, yeah no. <laughs> switch off. Yeah, I and yeah, I absolutely will. And I, I've I've known you now, Jill, for for long enough to to be able to yeah send you a quick. It'll probably come through Instagram. I'm like, Jill, are you sure that was you? <laughs> um, I miss fancy pants, pipe down. <laughs> yes, yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, no, because you normally when you have done when I've seen you on social media and stuff, you'll normally kick off with like, right, I'm gonna find this. Fight, you know, this might not be totally work what quite well, or this might all go a bit wrong. But bear with me guys um so, uh, so so yeah so how's the um how's the how's the running at the moment is this still you know obviously childhood let's well, let's just let's just divert a little bit here so obviously passionate throughout your life you you mentioned something quite interesting earlier about you know um your dad was a runner and you you know you you know you i'm not sure if a lot of it was for him or trying to make him happy but is is running remain running has remained part of your whole life or is it stops and starts yeah. or, or where are you now stops and starts definitely yeah. and then i got back into it um 
about 10 years ago now, um, in true Jill style, I went my dinger and I thought I had to be amazing. And I threw myself back into it um, and overtrained and got injured. And for the last eight years, it's been one injury after another. And so where I'm at now is I am still running. I'm actually at a, a very new stage for me where I'm just embracing where I'm at. I'm trying to be very happy with the fact that I've actually got my body to a point that it's almost pain-free um, and it's moving again. It's not moving like it used to, but it's still moving. I'm still running. I'm about to actually work with the wonderful, I signed up to work with the wonderful Claire McCaskill, who's um, yeah. a running coach. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to set myself a little goal of running a half marathon before I'm 50 in I want I still want to I want to run in under one one hour 40 which a few years ago would have been laughable for me now that would be a miracle but you know I'm yeah. I'm willing to have fun with it and just celebrate the fact that I can still run and I can still go out there and work towards a goal yeah great stuff okay so it's it's still that pa it's still a passion love yeah and and I that's one thing I, oh, gosh, I can't imagine the day when I can't go out and run in the mountains. Mm. I love it. I love it. I don't know if I necessarily, it's not necessarily the act of running that I love. It's what it does to my head. It's my thinking space. I just go out there. Everything makes sense. You know, all, I piece everything, everything together when I'm out on the trails. It, it de-stresses me. I, I love it. I love it. It's the simplicity of life, isn't it? Yeah. It's the simplicity of life being on that, like we said at the bit at the beginning, being on that lone wolf track and um yeah with just just you and your thoughts and it's just taken me back to uh to a period when um i was running a few marathons and funnily enough the marathon i least enjoyed was the london marathon because um i it was a carnival from start to finish so the noise from you know from when you set off to crazy. when you finish was absolutely crazy and on one hand i was like okay that noise and stuff and all the 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 energy coming from like the crowd of being seven eight deep all the way all the way along got you through the marathon right so on one hand it was like a powerful thing but on the other hand all i wanted to do was put my lifelong playlist on that I had um, I think it was an iPod back then put on my iPad and I wanted just to get on that lone wolf track because also I was in like you know obviously I was in, I was in pain on mile, mile 17 18 I was going through hell and I would have given anything at that point to uh, to get me on that lone wolf track because that's when um yeah that's when I I almost, I almost, in a weird kind of way, felt feel comfortable when I'm in yeah. pain on a, yeah. on a lone wolf track on my own. I don't feel comfortable when I've got people going, "Come on!" and screaming at me and holding signs up and stuff. <laughs> no, I'm so with you. I always, like, I always, I quite often say to my other half, "Just leave me, leave me. You go and allow me to just deal with my own demons because that's what I love. I love just yeah. that mental." I quite like 
it sounds strange to say I like to suffer, but I do. I like yeah. that that battle between it's just me and it's my pleasure, mind and my body. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I love it. I love it much more than I think that's the one frustration I, I have these days is because my body it's it it's a balancing act, you know. I've, I've got to work a lot harder to just just in order for it to function these days, and in order to be able to run. So I can't push myself like I used to, and I do miss that. I love that sort of pain threshold and just being in there and that mentally sort of dark place. But it's uh, that's where I love to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just I get so much joy from yeah. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Can, way, yeah. That sounds weird. Yeah. No, it, it doesn't sound weird. And I think that's a wonderful, uh, this is a wonderful point to say. If we do another podcast together where we go deep into that uh, pleasure pain threshold and that. And uh, yeah, it gives me pleasure knowing that there's so many others out there who are like me that like that lone wolf track, that like that going into a bit of pain. That, uh, because I, I, I also felt it was just me for so many years, uh, you know, so I thought, how could I not like the London Marathon? Everyone says it's the, you know, the most, you know, it's just, it's not that I didn't like it, but it was, it was just so busy. But um, yeah, put me on a, put me on a mountain track in the Alps any day of the week. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll be a, I'll be a happy bunny for for the rest of my life with a coffee and a hot shower at the end. That's all that I is. need to function. That's all I need to get through life. Oh, for sure. I'm actually, I'm hopefully going to do something at the, a race at the beginning of December that I think you would like and it is it starts at 11 o'clock at night so it will be in the middle of the night dark snowy freezing i'm only going to i'm going to do the shorter one which is 23 kilometers but it's again it's you're climbing up a mountain head torch on there'll be nobody around it'll just be me and my pain and i will love every minute <laughs> oh i can feel it i can feel it already yeah i can feel it it's uh it's yeah it's it's that pain that pain threshold is is my happy place so um jill thank you so much for coming on um that was so so powerful i think we covered some really good ground there and um you know i just you know i i just love that you've just opened up about your story and i'm hoping that the listener and will really sort of resonate and grab hold of your story and take some inspiration from it and um you know thank you so much for uh, for, for opening up today Thank you for allowing me to do so. It has been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been it's been a good one. And Jill, where can people find you? You can find me. I have a website. Look at me. <laughs> um, I am. If you just look, Jill Graham's the Happy Balance Coach. You can find me there or on Instagram. Same thing. Or on Insta. Okay, Jill. All right. Well, let's um let's keep in touch. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I look forward to speaking soon. Thank you, Justin. Take care. Take Bye-bye. care.